Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, on the last day of summer, a stranger comes to Orient, destined to change the town forever. That's New York writer Christopher Bolland's new novel, Orient. Christopher Bolland lives in New York City. He regularly writes about art, literature and culture. He is the author of Lightning People and is currently the editor-at-large at Interview Magazine. And his latest novel is Orient, which is what we're going to be talking about today. So, Christopher, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. How would you describe this book? What's it about? You know, it's always so hard for me to describe what books are about. I think if I had to write the blurb or the back of it, it would just be a sort of a word jumble. It is a murder mystery. I don't really think of it as a genre book. Like, mm. I kind of was approaching it like just another literary book that I was trying to do. But I definitely wanted to seize upon some of the aspects of a murder mystery that I always loved, mm-hmm. and especially a whodunit, which is mm-hmm. kind of how the structure goes. So, I mean, I don't mind the classification of it as a murder mystery, and that's kind of what I think of it. But it's also a sort of, I think of it also as like sort of a New York novel outside of New York. Yeah. It's like taking a part of the city outside of the city and trying to analyze it in a weird petri dish of a place to a certain extent. But you write a book about New York, New York obviously being a, a, a real place in the world. Yeah, nobody, I guess of. nobody really cares about the portrayal of New York because it's a place that exists in our in our imagination in a sort of cinematic and literary way anyway. Yeah. But Orient, the titular place in this book, is also a real place, but like a, a real tiny place. So that's a different thing to do, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> I actually don't think that New York is a real place. I think it's just to misquote Billy Joel, Mm -hmm. it really is just a state of mind. It's 8 million people's state of minds brought together. And that's why you can have eight different feelings about it in one day. Like, Mm -hmm. it's the worst place on earth, it's the best place on earth. So I actually don't know if it is real. I'm I'm still, I've lived there for 17, 18 years, and I'm not, I'm convinced it's some sort of just Mm -hmm. magical mirage. But you're right. I mean, the thing, the funny thing about Orient was part of my deciding to write it there was that it hadn't yet been written about, really. You can write a thousand novels set in New York City, but some places, some settings really only lend themselves to three or four books before everyone's sort of stepping on each other's toes and running out of things to, you know, make theirs. Yeah. So besides Nelson DeMille's Plum Island, which was in 1980s, no one had really uh, used it as a, a setting before. So, And it had become increasingly popular, so I kind of wanted to get there like some sort of colonizer or gentrifier. Part of it was just the excitement of writing about a place that I thought was so interesting that had sort of been left untouched by uh, the writers. It seems set out of the setting that we would normally expect from a, perhaps not a, an American novel, it feels more like a novel set in the in the Midwest, although it's like a sort of white bread New England right, place. Right, right. Like we would know Long Island, which is where the novel's set, we should probably have established that. Yeah. From, you know, The Great Gatsby or whatever. Exactly. Or, or Jaws or something like that. Right. But, you know, we all have heard of the Hamptons. But this is a part of Long Island that is unknown. Yeah, it's much less known. It's the North Fork of Long Island, which is, um, most people know the South Fork of Long Island, which is not South Fork in Dallas. It's the South Fork is where the Hamptons are set. And there's a zillion books written about the Hamptons. In fact, Gore Vidal wrote under a pseudonym detective story set in the Hamptons in the 50s. I mean, it's like, you know, there's a long history of the leisure and rich, affluent New Yorkers coming there for vacation. 
But the North Fork is sort of a quieter farm community. It's not on the ocean. It's mm-hmm. between the Sound and the Bay, so it didn't have that sort of same migration amongst the rich. And it's more of like a series of fishing villages and, and small communities. And Orion's on the very tip of it. It's connected to the rest of Long Island by just a thin strand of causeway. Then off of that, there's Plum Island, which is this famous animal disease laboratory of the U.S. government. And it's, yeah, it's really, it's, it's only in the last, I would say, decade that it started to become a more popular place for New Yorkers to go to mm-hmm. in summers or weekends. So it was a bit of an unknown place. But I do think, I do connect it to that history of Gadsby. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I, you know, people always say that's a city novel or the ultimate New York City novel. But it's actually the ultimate Long Island novel. It's less there's, about the city. There's a bit in the prologue where Mills, the, the protagonist of the book, is, is being driven. He's narrating at this point. He doesn't narrate the whole book. But he's, he's sort of being driven onto this sylvan Long Island where he's going to end up through a section of strip malls. Right. Which seemed to be like, that was their, you know, their, your valley of ashes, yes, basically. You know, yes, he was, he was sort of true. You have with, to pass through those gates of... And then that never features again. You know, you get, right. that's it. You, you know, you get out to the countryside and, and that bit is the bottleneck that you've gone through to get to the play. Yeah. I kind of wanted to say, I mean, it's a really simple setup in a way. There's... I mean, there's just a few a few chapters that deal with flashbacks and maybe go mm. to Romania or something. But for the most part, it's all set in Orient, and it starts out going there and it leaves leaving there. You know, like mm. so, it's it's really kind of that geographic entrance, which you know is another one of the reasons that I loved writing about it was that it was when I would go out there, I was always amazed how close it was to the city because mm-hmm. it's only a two hour drive, really. And yet it feels like what you were saying, like somewhere in the Midwest or like Mm -hmm. this surprisingly untouched, quiet New England town that seems so, until recently, unencumbered by the city, like Mm -hmm. untouched by it. It seems just such an odd thing to have so close. And you did go out there, so you you spent a period of time out there. So let's talk about that. What's the place like? Oh, well, so funnily enough, I I started going out there probably in the early 2000s because artist friends, I have a lot of friends who are artists in the city, and they started going renting houses out there and i think a lot of it was because the hamptons was so expensive mm-hmm. that's the usual migration so it was kind of this untouched place that they could sort of have their friends have houses nearby and they could start renting and so yeah we'd go for weekends and it was beautiful and quiet and and then when i was finishing up the edits of my first book some friends had just bought a new, an old house actually, but they had just bought it. It was this old clapboard house, 19th century, mm-hmm. and they had sort of demolished the interior, but they had to leave the exterior because of the historical society demanded that everything look the same as it originally did. You know, because it was all historically claimed. So they said, "Oh, you can borrow it for a week to do your work." And I had, I had really write in the city quite well. I don't really need to be one of the. I'm never mm-hmm. one of those writers that needs to like go on a retreat for like yeah. three weeks to really get a book down. Like I, I enjoyed the apartment writing situation. But I did go out there. I went alone. I rented a car. And it was so beautiful. Children riding bikes. I mean, it was like so... Uh, the bay, the water, and the, the grass is blowing. And it was so beautiful. And then night crept in. It was this extreme darkness. Suddenly the house, which looked so quaint and beautiful, started taking on all of the elements of the house in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. Like claw marks on the walls. The <laughs> stairs were slanted in this weird way. And the noises were so intense. Mm-hmm. I couldn't understand. And I realized that I had never been an adult alone in the country before. <laughs> it was the strangest thing. Like I had lived in some of the worst neighborhoods in New York City and mm-hmm. you know, no problems when I just forgot to lock my apartment door. But I was terrified for some reason by myself. And I knew I was acting irrationally. I knew this was this was insane reaction. Mm-hmm. And yet I couldn't help myself. Like My imagination was going crazy and I was so scared that I actually brought a kitchen knife to bed with me. I know it sounds deranged. It sounds... <laughs> But I did, I felt really scared. And so I think a lot of my interest was that sort of beauty by day and suddenly nightmare by night feeling about it. And I was interested in about how like city people coming out into the country mm-hmm. can suddenly be afflicted with these this paranoia and fear and the strangeness of something that's really so benign or supposed to be so benign. So there was that element for sure. And is this where the book came out of then? Because I was going to say, you know, did you go out there to research the book because you were writing it or you already were aware? No, I had no idea that I was going to write about Mm -hmm. Orient. In fact, I wanted to write about 
Nicaragua for some reason. <laughs> but my and I had this whole story planned about a family that opens a hotel there and my agent said that sounds like a horrible idea. So <laughs> and he was right. That was a really bad idea. But so it kind of came to me on that trip. Yeah, that it, and I think something about the causeway being the only connection that this little pocket of land has with the rest of the country just lent itself so well to a murder mystery mm-hmm. or a series of crimes set there. I always loved those Agatha Christie books that were, you know, kind of set in these isolated zones, mm-hmm. like country houses or islands or trains where people can't leave. So it's sort of like this isolation is sort of part of the plot. Mm-hmm. And I felt like it would just really lent itself to that. So, yeah, it was on that trip that I decided that I would make Orient the setting. And it's really a setting that's more like a character mm-hmm. um, because it's such a particular place. I don't think I could have set it in the Catskills and written the same book. You know, it was it had to be Orient or mm-hmm. nothing. I'm Tom Barbash, and you're listening to Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. How embedded were you in the in the? Uh, like you really right. or something. I pretended Within to the... be an old, you know, I um, an old fisherman for a year. Well, you know, that's the funny thing is that I went out there and I I knew the one side because it's a lot of artists going yeah. out there, and that is a, a significant part of the book. And they were friends and people, and I had always wanted to write about the art world anyway in fiction, so it seemed like an ideal opportunity. But for the other side of it, you know, the the year-rounders or the people who are living there full-time, I had to, you know, just ask questions. And I went on some car rides with some old-timers who lived out there who showed mm-hmm. me certain sites and um, how things had changed and what it used to be like. And, in fact, one of them was once the head of the Historical Society and pointed out Plum Island on the coast. And he said, people are always asking me about Plum Island because it's this... Mm-hmm. Just for those who don't know, it's like a a famous um, conspiracy theory site, you know, like what they were testing. Mm -hmm. There's this idea that Lyme disease, which is like spread by ticks throughout uh, New England and New York, was actually created on Palm Island, you know, for war measures and you know there's a lot of <laughs> like disease it's such a benign disease as I mean, well. I it's know. not particularly one that you're gonna, yeah, exactly. you're gonna win a war but i know it. like it would have to take like 20 years for it to take effect <laughs> but there's all exactly but there's all these weird like anthrax like all these weird ideas about plum island but he's like i'm so sick of people talking about plum island when they come out here do me a favor and don't put plum island in your book and of course i instantly wrote in my notebook Plum Island. <laughs> that sounds interesting. I'll definitely include it. So I did. Yeah. Um, it's in the book. But yeah, in the, but they were very generous and open. And <clears throat> it really is such a small place that the people who live there have, I mean, like anywhere people have lived for a long time, any neighborhood that you, you have, there are people who really care so much about <clears throat> their about this place. And they know the whole history of it. They feel... A certain ownership to it. And so I'm sure when the book comes out, I'm sure when Orient finally reaches Orient, there will be buckets of stones waiting for me if I ever cross the causeway because I didn't get it exactly right. I made Orient my own, you know? Well, you say because I didn't get it exactly right. But I mean, you've just said, yeah, you know, Plum Island plays a significant part in the story. The Historical Society plays a significant part in the mystery. And this is sort of what I was getting at in the beginning about, you know, if you'd written a book about a district in New York, it it doesn't really matter. But what are people going to think? What are the the people you met and talked to going to think when this book comes out well i'm sure a lot of them will hate it because i did do i did make alterations in the landscape that are actually different for instance Mm -hmm. i did set a high school in orient i mean it's so small but there isn't one there's a grade school in orient but there's the high schools actually in greenport but i just didn't want to like have to explain that there aren't enough people in orient for there to be at all a high school so i I mean those little things mean so much Mm -hmm. i know i grew up in a small neighborhood in cincinnati ohio called hyde park and Mm -hmm. i I'm telling you, if someone wrote a book called Hyde Park and they weren't from Hyde Park because I'm not from Orient, people would be outraged. There would be riots in the streets Mm -hmm. of Hyde Park because 
if someone put a church in the wrong place. So I, I absolutely understand what will likely I like how be. they might be upset with that rather than the, the, the string of vicious murders. Right, no, that's no problem. <laughs> but, I, you know, that place is, I love it to death and everyone's very nice there, but it's not without its secrets and dark spots. Mm-hmm. So I don't feel so bad about making it a good locale for a lot of murderous activity. But funnily enough, I will say that I got a call in December out of the blue from the Historical Society of Orient asking mm-hmm. if I would read at their spring fundraiser. And my first response was, is this a trap? Because I really <laughs> thought, like, are you trying to get me somewhere where you can lock the door and mm-hmm. scream at me? But they were very generous and they hadn't read the book and they still haven't because it hasn't come out yet there. But um, I met them. They were so nice. Couldn't be kinder. I'll probably never, they'll never talk to me again. <laughs> Let's um, finish off this part just looking a bit more at the history of that of that area as well, because part of the significance of those small group of families in this story is mm-hmm. that a lot of them, their families have been there for, yeah. for, you know, for centuries, have owned that land for a long time, and that's what the sort of story is about. So, right. so what is the, what's the history of that area? It was, well, there's a lot of debate about, actually, about the history of the area, whether or not they were royalists or loyalists in the revolution, or, but it was settled uh, with, like, the rest of New York, and it actually, for a while, what's interesting is that I, that I spoke earlier about the Hamptons, for a while in the late, 1900, the late 19th century, it was actually a vacation hub, so mm-hmm. there were a lot of uh, hotels along the coast there, and it would be for, and there was, you know, old boats would come and take New Yorkers out there and then they would hunt in the fields and then they would swim and boat ride and sail. And then it was actually only in the advent of the Hamptons that kind of went away. But it was, in that time, it was also a huge potato farming area. Mm -hmm. And so it was a a fishing village and potato farming area. What's interesting too, I learned, is that most of the people that built the houses there were shipbuilders. So actually the houses are not well made in Orient because they're not built by normal architects. They're built from scraps of boats, Mm -hmm. which is kind of what makes them these sort of beautiful but dreary and and not very warm shelters. And then, you know, I think it it sort of slightly suburbanized in the course of the uh, mid-20th century. But it always has this... I mean, still if you go out there, it still feels this mix of a little suburban and very farm. Mm -hmm. And there's still, you know, acres and acres of farmland out there. There was also recent Orient history that I wanted to bring into the book. Mm -hmm. I mean, just things you find along the way. And one of them was actually that there was this big dispute over a pipe that would come in and put plumbing into, you know, make a general, connect the plumbing pipeline Mm -hmm with uh, the rest of Long Island. And there was this huge debate that it was going to bring on development in Orion. And there was, you know, there was outrage about that and fear that it was going to take over Orion and it was stopping. So, you know, there was a lot of, there were a lot of politics and worries and culture clash already embedded in that community that, you know, I wanted to bring into the book to give it that authenticity of Long Island. And of course, the, the artistic community that you've already mentioned that you're, yeah. that you're familiar with, that again is part of the story, the sort of incomers. So to what extent are those tensions, is that going on as well as, you know, the story of the water pipe is, plays a significant part in the book as well. But is there this tension between the artists and the... Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think maybe the role, I always find that the, I think, this is my take on it, is that the role of the novelist isn't to find knots in the community and untangle them. That's mm-hmm. sort of the role of the, maybe the journalist. It's sort of like to find knots in the community and tighten them. And make them more intractable mm-hmm. to add the tension. But there's definitely a lot of tension, I think, in Orient between the new people and the old. And what the new people mean and what they're going to do with the land. And, you know, it's it's an, as old as land in America, really. You know, you suddenly realize your land is worth something. You delight in the fact that it's worth something Mm -hmm. but also when you know rich people come in and buy the land you're losing the old sense of community that it was Mm -hmm. so you know that's a sort of a common thread in in america in a lot of ways so you know and i think that for these kind of towns that have existed since the founding of the united states it's it's, in in a way it's a very eastern story Mm -hmm. in fact mills is maybe the only westerner in a sense in the entire book and so there is that loss of the past 
Um, and I think there is a, sort of an irony that it's artists coming in and taking it over. Artists are usually the sort of bohemian, you know, they're still conceived, I think, in that old sense, maybe outdated sense of mm-hmm. artist as bohemian thinker. They're actually the ones in the 2008 otherwise stock market crash and, you know, the market going to a tailspin. They came out relatively unscathed. I mm-hmm. mean, the art bubble continued. So artists made a lot of money in those years and they could afford the houses. And so instead of maybe being these adult juvenile delinquents, which artists are often thought of as being, or these radicals and rebels, they're ending up buying these sort of like quaint houses and fixing them up and making them theirs. So yeah, there's, I think, a little bit of a shock to that, to the Orient system. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Christopher Bolland and we're talking about his book Orient. And Christopher, we've been talking about Long Island in the main in the first part. I want to go back to what the book is about. In the prologue, there's a quote. Mills, the, the main protagonist, has a quote. He says, I, I learned to lay a lesson about life in the better parts of America, that it takes merciless, distrusting, miserly acts in order to live an ordinary life. So let's talk about what you mean by that. Yeah. Well, you know, it was it's just another turn of the screw, I think, in terms of how you expect the city to be the place, or New York City especially, where, you know, it, it eats you up, it mm-hmm. spits you out, it doesn't care about you, it's the dark, uh, the dark side of, of America. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think that these dark undertones move throughout all the communities and 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 even the most peaceful and benevolent seeming ones Mm -hmm. has this kind of terrible tension underneath and demand and there is a lot of you know even in these beautiful elaborately homespun family communities of neighbors waving there's there's a lot of evil there (laughs) i mean not just orient either i'm not really attacking it's just a stand-in. You know, I was, I was so in love with the name Orient because I just loved the word because of all of its multiple connotations and denotations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was a lot of... I liked the idea of it being a place of, of utter confusion and disorientation mm-hmm. while being named Orient. But um, do you think... I mean, what do you think about that, that idea that there's the compromises that need to be need to be made to keep up that you know i guess it's an idea of the american dream or whatever this mm-hmm. idea of living this this lovely life in a you know beautiful old clapboard house by the sea and yet still there are compromises that that need to be made in america to make that life livable right i i think that that's true and i don't think those compromises are necessarily innately bad things i think everyone has to make compromises the idea of like a, living a free life i don't know if that even makes sense i don't know what that could possibly mean but i do think that you know it's the old idea too that it for a community to cohere it has to sort of be against something mm-hmm. or there has to be this you know people do best when they create a, they have a common enemy and so in a lot of ways a stranger coming to town like mills or something creates um they everyone spills all of their anxiety onto this the stranger and that allows the community to feel more connected, interconnected with each other, you know? So, I mean, I feel like that's a, that happens a lot in small towns, you know? A fear of what's coming in, and a fear of the unknown, and a fear of change in a lot of ways. So I want to talk about some of the characters in the book, then, and we'll start with, we'll start with Mills, who yeah. starts off the book as the narrator in the prologue he, he's narrating what's going on and then you know it becomes a more of a, a third person thing in the book well actually let's talk about why you did that you know I, I realized that I did it for a number of reasons one I did it because I realized that while I wanted to write a murder mystery I didn't want to follow the usual mm-hmm. American vein of murder mystery writing which is either a police procedural or a noirish detective story I didn't want to start with a murder and have an outsider come in and solve it, which is exactly how it's done on the television now, constantly in every show. I wanted to actually have 
two sort of amateur characters or amateur characters, amateur sleuths, real characters who have something to lose and need to figure it out or want to figure it out because there's, you know, something at stake for them. Mm-hmm. And that meant that I couldn't start with a death in the first scene. You know, you can't do that. You need to build, you can't, it's sort of, I was thinking about how you don't start with a chessboard already set up. You actually have to set the chessboard up. So Mm -hmm. I knew that there needed to be a few chapters where you needed to get to know the characters. And I still wanted to bring that feeling of tension into it. So I thought by doing a prologue of Mills, who kind of in the prologue um, makes it clear that he's sort of the suspect or the one that's considered guilty. I thought that that might give enough tension to have readers continue on. And he's he's a mysterious character. We don't know much about him. There's a yeah. little bit more revealed as as the story goes along. But I, he still remains, uh, I guess, a cipher. You know, as someone who's got that sort of mystery. And also, it makes him, as I know, immediately seems like a you know a, a, an iconic character, an iconic yeah. American drifter type character yeah, obviously yeah. Which, which is what he is by you not revealing that much of course again you know it, it, it's difficult to avoid the, the Gatsby comparison right. but he reminded me of you know like Nick Carraway coming from the west to the east and yeah. then leaving again yeah. as well and being somebody that was commenting on events from a you know from a, a moral perspective but let, let's just talk about this idea of where he comes from where did that character you know who is he right I think that maybe the reason I wrote the prologue, and I actually wrote it first before I wrote the rest of the book, was maybe I was trying to come to terms with who he was, too, Mm -hmm. and trying to get his voice down. Because he does remain a little bit of a question mark throughout. And I think that in a lot of ways that had to do with the fact that I I think he's 19. And I think we have this tendency to think that character is set really young, Mm. and that... You even see it in most literature where, where seven-year-olds already have these distinct personalities running around, like little adults. But I think when you're 19, you're really susceptible to take mm-hmm. on almost like in a chameleon form your surroundings. And you can be whatever you, whatever the other person wants you to be in a lot of ways. And you're trying things on and you're trying to figure yourself out and coming to terms with who you are and what people expect of you. So it seemed really disingenuous to make like a 19-year-old that was like a 65-year-old, you know, like already with everything set in place. Because mm. I certainly wasn't like that at 19. No, and I, and I think the fact that he's 19 sort of reflected throughout yeah. some of his actions. Yeah. Know, he does things where you think, oh, no, don't do that. Yeah, you know, exactly. That was a stupid move. No, of you know, course. Don't. Like 19-year-olds do stupid <laughs> things. And... You know, he's also, as you find out in that in that prologue, he was always up for adoption. So, yeah. of course, like, he he comes from a foster care background. He didn't have a family. So, of course, he's always been trying to assimilate yeah. in a lot of trying ways. Trying to be what other people want him exactly. to be. Exactly, yeah. So there's that feeling there. And, and you know, I mean, there's obviously, like, the orphan in American literature is an interesting figure. Mm-hmm. And I was drawing on that sort of drifter feeling um, that comes from the West, that I like in, in sort of American myth. But another aspect that was that was important to me was actually his sexuality mm-hmm. and that he's gay. And I live in the East Village and something happens around this time of the year or mostly May. And a lot of young people, which I imagine from all over the city, start coming and living on the streets of the East Village. Yeah. And when I first moved to New York, I moved for college, you would see these, we would call them gutter punks, and you would see them, and a lot of people would say, oh, they're just um, middle-class kids from New Jersey who take the path, train in, and pretend to be homeless because it's cool. And for a long time, I believed that to be accurate. And then I realized that was just a, sort of a way to calm one's own conscience about mm-hmm. it, you know, that, about that, that we're teen runaways, basically, living on the streets of New York. Mm-hmm. And out of that populace, of uh, that sort of drifter group, I think... 20 or 40% of them are usually gay um, because they've been kicked out of their homes. So I think there there was something about Mills not having a home and being gay and not having a place and sort of becoming like one of those kids. He's not a runaway because he never had anything, uh, never had a home to speak yeah. of really. But he is sort of like a drifter who's forced by his circumstances and maybe by his identity into the street and, and sort of is seeking a place to be and stay and you know that's sort of offered by the character hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Who's an Orient resident, who's also a New York resident, who brings him out to the, the country yeah. to help fix up his house. And that's Paul. And yeah. you know, throughout the book, there's an ambiguity about his sexuality. Mm-hmm. But also, what I found really interesting about you, I mean, you said that, you know, they it was important that Mills was gay because of that world that he came out of. Yeah. But actually, once he's, once he's on the island and he is this character that is an outsider and is, becomes the scapegoat of all of the other people's worries about these murders, actually, that's not, that's not really an issue. No. No, it isn't. And it's, it was a fine line. I was actually thinking about this so much while writing it because you don't want... I didn't want to make it like a 1950s version of what people think of homosexuality. Yeah, exactly. that it's, but I also didn't want it to be one of those things where it's like, okay, people are getting married, now it's over. It's not an issue anymore, mm-hmm. when it so clearly is still an issue. So I wanted to draw some lines where there was still the residue and feeling of outsiderness to being gay or that there that you know some people in orient did still have feel uncomfortable about it especially as is what happens in the book mills sort of takes a liking to the next door neighbor who's this teenager and of course like this sort of anxiety of a parent faced with that i mean which in a way is understandable in any context like you know you're worried about your kid but um so i wanted to it was an interesting line to draw on how much to make that into a huge issue mm-hmm. or no not an issue and I tried to strike a tone where it was an issue and, and, and you know it's part of his identity and it's essential part the sexuality is an essential part of, of one's identity but yeah I don't think that's the worst turn that's not the sort of guilty mark uh, in itself amongst this community I mean they're they're worldly enough to understand that you know and then there are other characters that are gay in the in the book as well um Beth, who is the... Oh, you mentioned... You alluded to the fact that there are two amateur sleuths in this, Mills being one. The second person is another person who he becomes friendly with, Beth. So tell us about Beth a bit. Well, actually, because Mills is sort of a little vague in a lot of ways, or you're not quite sure what his motivations are or where he's coming from, I knew that Beth had to be really nailed down. Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted a character that, like, you could absolutely understand and you know you could get crawl right into that skin and feel it and so that was she was my attempt to provide that and she's an orient she was born and raised in orient moved to new york to uh become an artist and that sort of failed on her it didn't work out she had a show got bad reviews and she sort of lost her own faith in her work Mm -hmm. She ended up marrying a sort of rising, successful star artist and moving back to Orient with him with the idea to have a family, start a family there. And suddenly the idea that she wants to be a mother seems more appealing than it did before to her. I actually have noticed this happening amongst my female friends. You know, they swear off having kids and suddenly around 30 or 35, the idea doesn't seem as, Mm -hmm. you know, trapping as it did before. And then maybe it does seem trapping. And so, you know, I I feel bad for Beth in a lot of ways because I, I think that the fear of being burdened with your early failures and having to live with them, it's terrifying feeling and it's frustrating feeling. And then not knowing at age, you know, 33, 
what you really want out of your life mm-hmm. or, or, you know, maybe what you thought you wanted isn't, isn't what you wanted anymore. I think that's a common feeling. I think, you know, people think that you sort of have to have a life resolved by 30. You know, for most people, it doesn't really work that way. I'm J. Courtney Sullivan. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. I sort of wanted to use Beth as a way in to talk about that art world. Yeah. Because, I mean, you just said that she's she went to New York to try and make it as an artist and failed. Right. But she's failed in, like, the shittest way. Do you know what I mean? In yeah. That, she's obviously really good. Yeah. But she's failed through some terribleness of the of that contemporary right. art world, really. Yeah, it's a very that. fickle, tough, mm. uh, especially on painters, <laughs> because no one really knows what to do with painting now. People just do endless iterations of abstraction, which, you know, sort of kind of becomes so soulless. But that's what's, you know, selling well. Mm. And so, you know, for me, I've, I've been in the art world a long time. I've written about art since the late 90s. And most of my friends are actually not writers, but artists. And so, you know, I've always been around artists and in the art world and seeing it. And I was really curious about putting it into a book. And I felt like no book that I knew of had written about it correctly. Mm-hmm. It always becomes a parody. It so often becomes a joke. Well, I was going to... I mean, you do lightly satirise that world, but at the same time, it's self-satirising. So it's sort right. of difficult to satirise. Yeah. I mean, and it is a funny, weird yeah. world. Mm. But I also felt like there was something smart about... Or a real potential in taking it outside of New York yeah. to discuss it. Because you put it in... As soon as you describe like a white gallery space and a person wearing black at the front desk, mm-hmm. it becomes a total parody, yeah. right? Like, it becomes silly and dumb and we can all make fun of it. But you take these artists outside of the city, you put them into the country yeah. where they are can be their own persons and personalities, and then maybe you can see them a little more clearly. It's like taking the animal out of the camouflage, you know, and like you can see it, what it really looks like a bit more. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's such a bizarre... It, who knows the, the what catches on and what doesn't, or who becomes successful, mm-hmm. or how they become successful. And sadly, of course, that's so determined now by how much money they make, just yeah. like every other career. We sort of decide which artists are hot by what collectors are buying them. Mm-hmm. And if you don't fall into that, no one will give you a show. You're like Beth. You're sort of like thrown out on the side. And, and it's funny that you say that she's good. I think that she's a good artist too, but I've had artist friends read it and be like, that work sounds awful. <laughs> and I think, okay, maybe awesome, maybe it is awful. Like, I don't know. Like, it, she was still sort of, like, figuring it out in mm-hmm. a lot of ways, you know? Well, I thought, I mean, there's Gavril, who's her husband, right. whose work, I mean, just sounds terrible. Right, I mean, it right. sounds really, like, really right. genuinely, you know, he's the biggest star, you know, he's a rising star, right. or has been a rising star, is sort of starting to falter a bit, and his work yeah. sounds exactly like a, a, a parody of... Right. Of, but I thought, actually, the, the character Nathan, whose works are the funniest, who right. sound more like you attempted to sort of satirise that world a bit through him. Right. His were the works that I thought were the best and the ones I would like to see. Yeah, you know, exactly. those funny. There's a list of his works which just gets funnier and funnier right. as they go through. And I thought, yeah, he's the one I like the most. Yeah, no, I liked his work a lot. <laughs> I, I, I liked the boiler spoiler idea yeah. a lot. I think that should really become an artwork where you just ruin... Hopefully someone won't do it to me because you really could do it to Orient just say who did it, who the killer is at the end, and that would be... Not the last. I wouldn't have the last laugh there. But yeah, no, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, and that's the question of can you, you know, that might be my failure as a visual artist. That I, <laughs> the best I could come up with was the sort of like funnier um, social commentaries. And, and then I couldn't really produce <laughs> great masterworks in formal or, you know, in sculpture and painting. Um and then there's, there's Luz Wilson, yeah. who I think is you know possibly the most the best realized character as an artist. So tell us a little bit about her and who. I mean, I loved Luz. I loved writing her. Mm. I, she was my favorite character to do because I really I think she really rang true to me in a lot of ways. I don't know. 
She's a very successful painter, portrait painter, but, you know, sort of like an acid-tongued style or an acid-brushed style. I was interested in her place because she's one of... She's the kind of person who comes from a lot of... You'd think that it would be a lot of disadvantages, but she turns them all into advantages. (laughs) You know, she's a woman artist. She's half black. She's from poverty. But she turns these all into advantages for her. She's very tough, smart, uh, maybe a little too arrogant and a little too ambitious character. But I also hope that the... You know, people always have different feelings about their own feelings about characters, but I also hope she also does not seem like this sort of terrible, treacherous, difficult person, but also mm-hmm. has a lot of insight and um, isn't all bad or all good. I mean, you know, she's she has a hard edge to her, mm-hmm. and she comes off that way, but I think, you know, she also is becomes a more human character as the story, as the novel progresses. I think I... And it may just be that I, I it's painting I particularly like, but I did want to see her work. You know, her work attracted me. The idea, right? Again, it's the same with Beth. You know, I wanted to see Beth yeah. paintings. They, yeah. they attracted me, and I wanted to see Luz's amazing, aggressive portraits. Right. That right. Like something I would really like. Yeah, <laughs> and then the, there's that interesting part where where Gavril at the end, like or sort of later in the book, gives it's on a flashback, gives Beth advice about like being harder on the subject and like, you know, Mm. letting them hang themselves by their own rope. And she doesn't want to do that. Like she doesn't want to be that sort of like cold calculating kind of painter. And you know, you can't help it, but maybe there's something lost. Like when you are trying to be too, there's also that bit where, you know, where she's failed and she, you know, she destroys some of the, some of the canvases and he says, well, they're better now. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Which I think might be true in a way, you know? Yeah. I know, which is like the cruelest part of it all, where it's like, Jesus, like my destruction's better than my creation. Just a, a couple of things to finish up, and then I'll get you to read some of the oh, book sure. if, if you would. So, I mean, we've, we've talked about some of the obvious ones, I guess, but I wanted to talk about what other authors and, and books were an influence on this. Um, well, I have a thing where I try to steal really far from reading anything that touches on whatever I'm working on. Mm-hmm. So, I actually didn't read any murder mysteries during this time. Although Orion in itself excited me just because it was connected to Murder on the Orient Express. Um, so I liked that there was this sort of legacy to the... Which does not give away who mm-hmm. who does it. I didn't remind... It's not 12 people, I, sw- I swear. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's a lot of authors that, that have a lot of influence on me in strange ways. I mean, you know, I love Franzen for his sentences. I wouldn't say I like him necessarily for his characters, but mm-hmm. I like... I like the way he writes, but, you know, um, I mean, there's like a zillion different writers that I've... Mailer has always been... I've been a huge Mailer fan my whole life. So I really, you know, I think he's a sort of under... He's an over-recognized personality, but a sort of an under-recognized novelist mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And, you know, in terms of mystery, I think, you know, Agatha Christie was a big influence and always... You know, I, I've loved, I love, I, I think it's a, a much more British way of writing mysteries is the way I sort of tackled it instead of that sort of traditional American way. Um, I also love Patricia Highsmith just for the sort of, the way she, maybe not so much for the poetry of the sentences, but mm-hmm. how she sets up characters. And there's a lot of doubling in this book and there's a lot of um, real and simulations of real and i like the way she does that she has a lot of build-up like that as well sort of freudian is this the real person or Mm -hmm. the person the replica of the real person or who's you know yeah i I do think people who like patricia highsmith would like this yeah it's a really good touchstone for it and you picked out, you know, I, obviously The Great Gatsby had a gigantic influence on me when I was little. Yeah, that's a huge... I, like I can't stop, like, thinking about The Great Gatsby, which I know is a little, maybe a little troubling. It's not out yet. No. It's out in, I think, in this country later this week. We recorded it early in April, is it? But in America later. In May. So we can't really talk about what the reaction has been so far. But there's a lot of buzz around the book. I mean, yeah. what's, been, what's been going on for you in this sort of build-up oh, well, to first it coming I also, out? I also want to say, in terms of you never know what your influences are. I think sometimes when you're writing a murder mystery, too... There is a certain panic that comes over you, like, was this an episode of Matlock? <laughs> or, like, was, did I just write something from a murder she wrote I saw when I was nine? But so, you know, you never know, like, what the what influences you when you're, when you're writing plot like that. 
Um, you know what's funny about Orient is that it has gotten a lot of concern uh, more than anything. I think people in the art world have this misunderstanding because page six in the New York Post did something on it mm -hmm. that made it seem like I was actually like picking real artists and uh, using them on a one-to-one -one level for characters. I'm not. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I don't think any artist is going to find themselves in it. There are, you know, there's certain artists that have similar work sort of, but not really. And then I think all of Orient's in a sort of worried state that it will reveal secrets. I don't think it will reveal any secrets either. It's not like I, you know, took anything from people's lives out there. But I do think that, you know, it does do a pretty good job of painting some of the fears of both the art world or some of the confusions of the art world and of Orient and its position and what it could become and what it, where it is. And someone told me that there was a weather vane two weeks ago that got stolen off of this, like this, like a hundred year old weather vane off of the beach where only residents are allowed to go and how everyone in Orient was furious about it. And I thought it's exactly what I was writing about. <laughs> so it is like, I'm, I'm, see, I'm proven correct. And if this is a, a massive success, people are going to be going to visit Orient. And they'll love that, you know, eventually. They'll right. I know, exactly. You know, a lot of people said thanks a lot for, in like a negative way. Like, that, you know, it's that I'm ruining Orient by putting it out there. Like, letting the secret out. But What's next for you? If this is if this is a massive success, are we going to see that Nicaragua book? Um, I, you know, I thought, someone said that I should, that um, I should write Greenport, which is the next <laughs> town over. And just keep going until I get back to New York. Um, I'm actually, I've started another book. It's set in Greece. Uh, I was always obsessed with vacation novels, which I don't mean novels to read on vacation, although I do read a lot of novels on vacation and love them. I mean uh, novels set on vacations. Mm -hmm. So I, I like that, the sort of how vulnerable someone is when they're supposed to be enjoying two weeks of leisure and how, you know, confused you are to your surroundings and like you don't really know where the police station is for example um so i'm trying to set something on a greek island like that that deals with again sort of americans maybe mostly new yorkers at sea Kate Hamer, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This is how I first saw you, Long Island, on a map in the front seat of Paul Benchley's car, like the body of a woman floating in the New York harbor. It still amazes me that no one else sees the shape of a woman in that island sprawled along the coastline, her legs the two beach-lined forks that jut out to sea when the land splits her hips and breasts the rocky inlets of oyster coves, her skull broken in the burrows of New York City. Even now when I close my eyes and try to picture the place where all the trouble happened, I see her there drifting in the waters of the East. When people try to picture me, they undoubtedly recall only the last time they saw me, just before I went missing. There's been a lot of speculation about the night I left the far north fork of Long Island. How a 19-year-old wanted for questioning in a string of murders managed to elude police and vigilant local drivers, both parties hurrying too slow through the pale March frost and winter sound winds that turned the coast beds into grisly scrapyards of ice. That part is simple. I ran. What seems lost in the growing storm of blame is how I got there in the first place. I don't expect you to believe the goodness of my intentions. I have learned too late about life in the better parts of America that it takes merciless, distrusting, miserly acts in order to live an ordinary life. I came to Orion at the tail end of summer, and I went by the name Mill Chevron. I arrived mostly innocent. Do you remember seeing me on those last warm days? The air conditioning in Paul's car spewed balmy tunnel exhaust as I traced my finger over the island on the map. Obviously, I didn't mention that it looked like a body to Paul. He might wonder if I'd lost my mind, and at that point, Paul Benchley had few clues about the workings of my mind to go on. 
Instead, I kept my mouth shut and studied the halting traffic of the Midtown Tunnel. The truth is I'd never known that land existed out in the Atlantic beyond the city. As a native of the West, I dreamed of the East since childhood, and I'd always imagined the country ending right there among the skyscrapers. But there is land, a hundred miles of it beyond. It was Paul who decided we should get out of town early that morning. Weekend traffic, he said, with a special fatigue reserved for the topic. Weekends keep getting longer just to account for it. We cleared the tunnel and the toll booth and fought the sun that greased the windshield. Soon enough, we were out in its stretch, a straight shot of expressway through warm and ravaged Long Island. One mall was alive and blinking, but the next was a ghost town of discount mausoleums. As of all life forms here had withered into asphalt. I pictured the ghosts of prudent shoppers haunting those silent lacquered halls. The island's main harvest was parking lots. They grew thick around the off-ramps, thick as the trees that guided the highway and gave riders a sense of the wilderness that must have once covered the island from shoulder to foot. Still, even today, it's not entirely tame. We passed Wall Street traders in Budweiser red Porsches and swerving out-of-state minivans, and I felt the heavy bass of radios in my teeth. We wove so quickly along those four eastbound lanes, opting mostly for the HOV, that I didn't bother to tell Paul how hungry I was, and every turnoff blurred bias as an afterthought. As the signs reading attractions grew sparser and emptier, the sunlight picked through the dense Atlantic clouds, and for a few minutes on those last speeding turns we glowed. We took the Long Island Expressway to its last exits, and while most of the cars threaded south at the splitting, off to the Hamptons, we went north to Orient. Paul had taken me out of the city to save me. Those were his words, and I'll admit I needed saving. I had hitchhiked all the way from California locked in cars with strangers, but now in Paul's Mercedes I was anxious. His knuckles skimmed my knee as he maneuvered the stick, and I kept a lookout for train stations in case my nerves got the better of me. On a thin red artery of a country road, the last footprints of city life disappeared. Tiny private gas stations were already shuttered for the off-season. Apple orchards and vineyards blanketed the fields. Between them, blue pines rolled their coats in the wind. I counted telephone poles. Later, they'd be decorated with my picture and worried how many more there would be leading us through vacant farmland. Paul licked his lips and smiled. Peaceful, isn't it? He said. I put my fingers on the door handle and looked back at the road, one long black carpet to New York being yanked out from under our wheels. And for the first time I could remember, I was frightened to be traveling east. I had lived in Manhattan for five months, first on the couches of friends I had known back west, then on the floors of acquaintances whose bad habits began at midnight and who threw blankets over their windows at the first tremors of dawn. I can still remember the panic on those mornings when the muscular red lights of the city bleached into the mineral blue of the sky and all the promises I had told myself at 1 and 2 and 5 a.m. tasted bitter and stale on my throat. On the day Paul finally intervened, I was barely forming sentences, slumped in the hallway of his Chinatown apartment building. He lived next door to an acquaintance of mine, and we had exchanged small talk several times in the foyer of his building. I was new enough to New York to include a bit of recent history with my hellos, and Paul was old enough in New York to understand why a kid wearing the same dirty t-shirt would come banging on his neighbor's door so often. On that day, when Paul practically stumbled over me on his third-floor landing, he hardly recognized the grime-streaked teenager crouching like a gargoyle at his door. He let me into his apartment, poured me lemony water, and offered me his phone, though I waved it off. I'm not really like this, I kept repeating, but for a while I refused to say what I was like. Paul turned his sofa into a sickbed, and I stayed there until I took my shakes out, and my constant sweat soaked his cushions. I made sure to fall asleep before he could find subtle excuses to kick me out. In the morning, I showered, washed his dishes, and scoured the top of the stove. You didn't have to, he said, squinting in disbelief to find both me and his apartment cleaner than he'd left us. Yeah, I did. I'm good at helping. That's when I told Paul what I was like. Mixed up in drugs, at bad ends for sure, but someone who could straighten out if he managed to find his footing. Someone, I told him, who could be all right. After a long talk, he suggested that I get some distance from the city and come with him to help fix up his weekend house. I repeat, it was not my idea to come this far east. But he sounded right, and I agreed. Orient. It still sounds beautiful. Or would if I didn't know any better. We gutted through the low mud pastures. Roadkill bloodied the pavement. 
squirrels or maybe even family dogs that now served as meat for hawks that spiraled away at the approach of our car. Paul glided us through the country bends as if they were as familiar as the curves of his signature. His face was kind-looking even in profile, with distinguished wrinkles and a brown mustache eaten gray at the edges. And he was generous in filling the lull in conversation. He babbled on about the great native tribes that once roamed these fields, their gods all forgotten by now. And from the looks of the empty A-frame churches we passed, tagged in weeds and crumpling under aluminum steeples, it seemed we'd done a decent job of forgetting our own. I could taste the salt in the air before I saw the sea. After twenty minutes of wineries and cow barns, the boarded-up motels gradually gave way to open hotels with vacancies. Strip malls narrowed the view. Then suburban homes made their claim until they lost their lawns, and it all dropped off, so suddenly it almost hurt into water. We drove over the causeway. Each window was flooded with a reflection of water, so white I was scared when Paul let go of the steering wheel. Grabbing the map, he pointed to the sliver of road between the Long Island Sound and Gardner's Bay and tapped the isolated landmass. That's Orient, he said. It looks like a bird, I replied, noticing how the land fattened out and then thinned to a beak. Not a predatory bird, like those road hawks. More like a small grouse or sparrow trying to lift off to fly east into the sky of the light blue Atlantic. Most of us think it looks like a flame, Paul said. That's probably because of the lighthouse at the tip that the historical board is so proud of. I'll take you there, if you want to see it, that is. It's a bird, I repeated. Paul didn't know, I suppose, that I was something of an expert on Rorschach tests. All foster kids are. He didn't know much about my background, who I came from, why my family made their home in California, the eyes or mistakes of my mother and father. And for that matter, neither did I. I was never burdened with that information. But now you understand why I went with Paul so easily. I've always been up for adoption. I like to think I saved many California homes from foreclosure in my childhood due to the monthly checks the owners pulled in to shelter me. The car slowed into a thicket of trees beyond the causeway. Lawns reappeared, along with two-story clapboard houses and faded porches with faded children's big wheels. Daycare at a nearby elementary school let out, sending a swarm of tiny rain-slickered bodies wandering across the street. They were the only things moving besides the branches overhead. Even the sailboats docked in the driveways were as still as held breath. As Paul stopped and waved at the crossing guard, I stared out the window at Orient. It frightened me, this kind of raw innocence so close to the city, like the feeling of the temperature falling too fast. It is hard for me to picture those first days without seeing the madness that was to follow. I realize now that the deaths in Orient would have happened whether I had made my way east or not. They were like matchsticks in a book waiting neatly to be ripped and burned. They remind me of something I'd heard years ago from one of my foster care buddies, a 12-year-old pyromaniac. Everything burns, his girlish voice sang, so you might as well learn how to handle it. If I'd stayed in New York City, I might have committed all sorts of unspeakable crimes. Instead, I came to Orient and left two months later guilty of nothing more than trying to save myself. What else can I tell you that you won't believe? That I saw the killer's face the night I left? I did. I held a flare in the darkness and saw a face so familiar that anyone might pass it on the sidewalk and not blink an eye. They might even say hello. I know it doesn't matter who I accuse. You've already decided who is responsible. You know by now that Mill Chevron isn't my real name. I picked it up on my way east and took it as my own. I'll leave that name here with you now. I've cut and dyed my hair and removed my earring. The only feature I can't change is my gray front tooth, but I don't expect to be smiling much. Where am I going? Back into the nowhere of America, and I'll be there soon. Like all things that run, I don't want to die. That's what a man is when he's running, not dying, refusing to. Still, the threat of being caught is always there, and I must keep going as quietly as planes overhead, something moving at terrible speed out of the corner of your eye, and gone by the time you look again. I've been talking to Christopher Bollen. We've been talking about his book, Orient, which is out this month from Simon & Shusto in the UK. So, Christopher, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunch website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 